Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... Money doesn't exist in the world any more than the law exists in the world. It only works if a bunch of people get together and decide, often without realizing they're deciding, to to create a set of rules around what will become money. Jacob Goldstein on the strange history of money and why more of us should ask each other, what's your problem? A quick housekeeping note before we get started. Many of you have noticed that we did not air an episode last week, and that's because our guest sadly came down with COVID right before we taped the show. Thankfully, he is doing okay now, but he will be on again at a later date. And because we had to skip a week, at some point relatively soon, there will be a week when we run two episodes to make up for the one we missed. So be on the lookout for that. But for now, let's get right to today's show. My guest is Jacob Goldstein. Jacob, hey, man. Hi, Cardiff. You are, I think, a podcast raconteur. Is that right? Storyteller? A, yeah, yarn spinner. Okay, yeah, sure. I've spun but, a few yarns. But the yarns, are, the yarns are true in your case, true. I think. Uh, tell people what you do, who you are, and something about your body of work. So my new job is I host a new podcast called uh, What's Your Problem? Okay, great cranky title for a podcast. Yes, good. Um, <laughs> and it's about what? It's about it's about technology and business. It's it's basically an interview show with people who are trying to figure things out, trying to solve problems, right? And the idea is like getting to the frontier, right? The exciting thing to me is a lot of of technical people in business now are out at the knowledge frontier, out at the technological frontier. And the problems they're trying to solve for their work are like big frontier problems in artificial intelligence, in self-driving cars, in drone delivery, whatever. So it's this idea of of big, exciting problems people are trying to solve right now in a yeah. really practical way. And the idea of the technology frontier, you mean people who are trying to solve problems that have not been solved before. This isn't like catching up to technology that already exists and you just need to invest enough and and figure it out and hire the right people. This is people who are trying to solve problems that are really, really difficult to solve. That nobody knows how to do, right? Right. It's it's not, it's, it's, it's big and exciting. It's not how do we catch up with the other guy. It's not how do we stop John and accounting from, you know, fighting with Sally and marketing. It's like, how do we figure out how to have a real everyday drone delivery business in America or, you know, have an app that can actually teach people to speak a foreign language for real? And they're, they're big, interesting, intellectual problems that have, you know, practical ramifications. And you are also the author of a book, a relatively new book. It came out last year or the year before about the history of money. Tell us about that. So, yeah, so the book is called Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. And it came out of my work. You and I used to work together. We should get that right out there. We (laughs) We worked together at NPR. I worked at Planet Money, and you worked at the sort of daily sister show of Planet Money, The Indicator. Yes. And so when I was at Planet Money, um, I got into covering money itself and the history of money. And I just realized that there's this incredible series of stories, really, origin stories largely, kind of the evolution of money over thousands of years at like these key moments when there's a big, a big pivot, a big innovation, something new. And and that by telling these stories, you get this kind of great insight into, you know, people, society, as well as money and economics. Okay, we're going to talk about both of those things. We're going to talk about money and we're going to talk about your podcast. What's your problem? I want to start with money. And I want to start with specifically the title of the book, The True Story of a Made-Up Thing. So here's a quote from very early in the book. You write, quote, Money is a made-up thing, a shared fiction. Money is fundamentally, unalterably social. The social part of money, the shared in shared fiction, is exactly what makes it money, unquote. So there's two parts to this. One is that it's a fiction, it's made up, and the second is that it is social. Tell us about these sort of two components of money that make it money. So I I came late to money and economics, right? So I was in my 30s when I went to work at Planet Money. I'd never studied economics. And I think like a lot of people, I just kind of assumed that money is sort of a fact in the world, right? Like this was unexamined, right? My unexamined feeling about money was like, it's like physics or something. There's some set of rules. It's this thing that exists in the world. But the thing I realized when I started looking at the history is that's 
absolutely false, right? Money doesn't exist in the world any more than the law exists in the world, right? Like the law, though I think we're more conscious about it with the law, money is a thing that people make up, right? It only works if a bunch of people get together and decide, often without realizing they're deciding, to, to create a set of rules around what will become money. So even though there is a physical manifestation of money in dollars and coins, it only functions as money because we all agree that it's money. And of course, a lot of money doesn't exist in a physical form. Most money, I think, at this point probably doesn't, right? Vast majority. And right. I mean, you think of a dollar bill, but like it's obvious in the modern world that a dollar bill is not valuable. And like even gold, I mean, you might think of gold. Well, gold is real. Yes, gold is real. Gold is older than the earth. But like it's not valuable. It's not money, right? So the the social fiction thing is taking this rock that is, you know, sure, desirable because it's pretty, but like whatever, and turning it into money. That's the both social and the fiction. I mean, and the social piece is like you could decide that something is money yourself, but like it wouldn't really be money unless several other people agreed to use it as money, right? Yeah. That's the social piece of the fiction. Yeah, and I, I thought of it as, in a way, a social nonfiction, but the nonfiction part rather than the fiction is that it is grounded in some kind of reality. And in the same way that if you asked me like how my day was, I would have to selectively choose how to interpret that question and which parts of my day to tell you about. I'm not going to tell you what the experience was like of putting my socks on in the morning, but I might tell you about the big events. I might tell you how I felt. I might tell you about what I'm planning to do later because you and I have this shared understanding of what that question means. Yeah. And similarly, I think we all sort of acknowledge that money's this thing that we need to exist in the world, that we need to function in the world, but it has a very particular set of meanings for us in terms of exchange, in terms of goods, in terms of the economy. And what I loved about the book is that it argues for a very active role of money in the economy and in society. It's not something that is just sort of there and it sends signals about how the economy is doing. You write that actually money is something that can often facilitate the kinds of economic activity that we really care about. Yeah, I, I keep going back to you putting on your socks in the morning. i got to get that out of my head. I've got a lot to say about socks, but we can put that off for now. It's, it's true, and there's a lot of places where that's, where that's clear, right? And, and it is tempting. I mean, there are even, you know, economic models, right, that just leave money out of it. Because you, you do, it is useful sometimes to think about, like, oh, well, money is just, like, the thing that facilitates the exchange, and what we care about is the actual exchange. And there are times when it's useful to forget about money, right? When you want to think about wealth, I think it's really useful useful often to like forget about money, right? It's like, okay, well, what we really care about is how much stuff, goods and services does a society provide. And the more of that there is, then the more wealth there is. And you can talk about redistribution and like money isn't actually the same as wealth. So there's times when it's useful to forget about money, but also it's really useful to think of money as, among other things, a technology, Right. In the basic economic sense of like a tool that leads to a productivity gain, a tool that, you know, lets people get more output for the same amount of work. And you see that again and again. I mean, you know, there's a bunch of stories like we, we could talk about any one of the particulars, but money as a technology, not in the computer sense or the Bitcoin sense, but just in a like a useful tool to make people more efficient, to make trade more efficient is a really nice way of thinking about it. I was intrigued to learn that money's origins were quite different from the stories that I'd kind of heard. So one story that we get sometimes is that money arose because the barter system just wasn't quite good enough. So you have something that you want to trade. I have something that I want to trade, but neither of us wants what the other person has. And so you introduce money and it makes it easier for you to sell something to someone else and then to buy what I have and so forth or whatever. The other story that I've heard is that it arose out of a kind of IOU system, like a kind of debt-based system so that if one person has something to sell and the other person wants it but doesn't have any way of paying for it, you just hand them an IOU, you take, you know, you take the goods that you wanted, and then the other person now has like this IOU that they can trade in for something later that they do want. Okay. Your book introduces the idea that actually money's origins came out of these very strange sort of rituals of murder and marriage and maybe some other ones. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, there's a really compelling, basically a, a story that comes out of the anthropology literature, right? And in particular, I mean, the debt, the money coming out of debt, I think, is a 
is a truer story. At least there's more evidence for that story than the money coming out of barter. But the, the anthropology story is basically... Anthropologists found, you know, when they went looking for barter, they didn't see barter society so much. But what they found was there were lots of societies. And these it's important to think of these as societies where, you know, they're relatively small. They're often kinship-based. So everybody basically knows each other, right, which is important for this kind of system. And there are— This is thousands of years ago, by the way. I just want to well, make clear. This no, is I a mean, very long time but, ago, But right? the anthropological story is like when, you know, anthropologists in the 20th century, early part of the 20th century, were going to non-industrialized parts of the world where there were still— uh, societies that had that that were not in the market, right? They were not they were not monetized, and so they still had more traditional uh, uh, means of exchange, right? There are these famous uh, books and papers. There's one called The Gift, which is a book from the first half of the 20th century uh, about some of this kind of thing. What they found was these societies had lots of rules about. Uh, giving and getting, right? So gift giving is a big deal, but gift giving isn't like, hey, I got you a thing. It's like really tied up with obligation and reciprocity, right? And so there are all these rules like, as you alluded to, like marriage is a classic, like, you know, we're familiar with, say, a dowry or a bride price or something like that. There are a million variations on that, but like, they tend to be quite specific. So, you know, there's uh, some some island where there were like, particular long, long tusks from a certain kind of boar was like the thing you had to give if you were going to get married. Cattle is a classic one. And similarly, murder is another big one. There are in many, many societies, very specific rules. If you kill someone from a family, you have to pay restitution. And that restitution is often really specifically described. Like you have to give a certain number of a thing, of cattle, of boar tusk, of cowrie shells. And so those things, the things that are defined in uh, marriage rules and murder rules, those are are the closest thing we know of to kind of proto-money, right? Because if there's a thing like anybody who gets married is going to need this thing, then like, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to hang on to some cows because somebody's going to get married and they're going to need these cows. And so that's that's the best story, I think, that is known for the emergence of money. And, and it is a much more social story, right? The barter story is really mathy and it's very much the like impersonal market exchange that we're familiar with when we go buy stuff, right? It feels familiar. But the other story, that social story, is like more nasty and human and weird and interesting and so fun, right? Yeah, it is a lot more fun. The book also includes a couple of stories where there were these early monetary experiments with introducing money that led to really impressive economic growth in the places where it was tried. One was ancient Greece. Another was China under the Mongols. And these experiments didn't last very long, a few hundred years, right? Well, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it depends on how you define yeah, it's very like long, from right? the Industrial Revolution to now, right? It, <laughs> right. it fell long then. Maybe our <laughs> experiment will be ending shortly, yeah. yeah. Uh, but what was interesting was that you write that these were early instances where money itself was something that enabled economic growth. It wasn't just this passive thing that existed in the background and that was part of these exchanges and that helped measure these exchanges. The introduction of money itself was what helped drive the growth. Yeah. I mean, the, the China story in particular, like, I'm I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that I didn't know it before I, before I was doing the research for the book, right? I'd been covering economics at Planet Money for 10 years, and I was into history, and, like, it was right there. But I guess it's just still... Eurocentrism, essentially, right? There's not as much written about it. I, I don't know, but... Yeah, so, situate us in time, by the yeah, way, so, when okay, it happened. So it's like 1000 AD, uh, the Song Dynasty. Uh, China invents paper money, basically. You know, they have paper and there's this province, it's Sichuan, where they uh, use a lot of iron coins and iron is really... Uh, it's not that valuable, right? And the, the value of coins in this era, as it was for most of history, is based on the value of the metal. So you needed like a pound and a half of iron coins to buy a pound of salt. It's like crappy money. So some merchant... It's a hassle to carry around. It's, it's so heavy. It's yeah. terrible. And, and, and also, obviously, it's like there's no mechanized transport, right? There's no... So you actually have to carry it, right? Or you have to put it on a cart or whatever. So some merchant starts giving people like... IOUs, like a coat check, basically. You know, like, Cardiff, you give me whatever, 20 pounds of iron coins, and I give you, like, this coat check receipt. And then you can see this coming. You used to say, like, oh, I don't have to go get the 20 pounds of coins from Goldstein. I'll just use this receipt as 
money, right? I'll go buy something. And I'll just give the the merchant, the the seller, this receipt, and the government sees it and uh, they like it, and and the government then starts printing paper money, and so you have paper money take off in the this is the Song Dynasty, and it is as you were alluding to, it's part of this much broader flowering, and to some degree causal, although certainly not entirely where you have this incredible proto-industrial revolution. The market economy is flourishing. You have urbanization. You have more trade, right? Like if you have a piece of paper representing many, many pounds of iron coins, that is a huge productivity gain, right? It's just easier to move purchasing power around the country. So you have more trade, bigger market, more specialization, right? People have like fish farms and then they'll, you know, move their fish to, to the market. You have technological innovations. It's this incredible flowering. And you have people People getting richer, right? This incredible thing that doesn't happen much for human history until a couple hundred years ago. And then the Mongols come in, as you as you mentioned, uh, that's after a couple hundred years of this. And the Mongols like it, right? They have this giant territory that spans Asia and they're nomadic and they're like, oh, paper money, genius, right? So they like it. And then you have a counter-revolution, basically. You have you have another dynasty push the Mongols out. And, you know, as happens with paper money, there are a few large inflations. And also this new dynasty is kind of reactionary. Like, they don't like all of these uh, market forces that, that have been unleashed. Skeptical of economic activity in the first place. Yeah. And they blame money for it, by the way. Or one of the things they blame is money. They don't, yeah, they, they, their thing is like the self-sufficient agricultural village, right? Classic reactionary dream. <laughs> and they wind up they wind up getting rid of paper money. So you have paper money appear, this, this incredible invention, you know, works for hundreds of years, I would say a long time, <laughs> and, and then it disappears. And, like, there's no paper money on Earth for, I don't know, 100, 200 years after that, which is, like, that part's also incredible, right? Because it's, like, they went backwards. China, in fact, got poorer after that, right? Like, it's really amazing. Yeah, it's a great story. I should say, in the long sweep of human history, it's a very short period fair, of time. But fair. we can say that about almost anything. Yeah. In the long sweep right. of human history, money is not that old, right? Money Correct. is whatever. It depends on how you define it. A few thousand years old. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and the point that you've been making is that if you look at how long it lasted back then during this period in China, it's about the same amount of time uh, as we've had in, you know, in I don't know what you want to call it, the advanced world, the, the industrialized world yeah. since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. So, it's a long time. It yeah, it's a coincidence yeah. that can make us a little bit nervous yeah. when we think about how it went. We could definitely go backwards. Yeah. One lesson. <laughs> it has it's not fashionable drunk. to say anything is backwards, but I'm, I'm confident in saying getting rid of money would be bad and it would take it you It has happened throughout history. Yeah. You also suggest in the book that money is a kind of democratizing force. And in the early days of money, that that's because, you know, if you have money, then people no longer have to rely on what you might call like their employer, their feudal overlords or whatever for all of their care, for their for their the goods that they have, for the services they need. Now, if they have money, they can go get those things on their own. And so in a way, it's a kind of individualizing force. It makes things a little bit more atomistic, but in a good way, it leads to more freedom to express your wishes because you have money to express them. Yeah, with. a overly reductive but useful mental model for me is, you know, you can have the sort of small kinship-based, reciprocity-based, like, you know, that's the marriage and murder money thing. Like, that seems cool. Like, I have to say that has a certain appeal. But you have to be pretty small for that to work, right? You can't have a big, complex society with those kinds of rules because they're, like, embedded, right? It's too—it just falls apart at a bigger level. And so then in the ancient world, when you would get bigger, complex societies, quite often they would be tribute, what are called tribute economies, right, where there's some— king or queen or priest or priestess or whatever who 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 does command and control what we would today call a command who basically tells everybody like you got to give you know you got to give this much of your crop to the to the temple essentially and then redistributes it right like if you th the incas amazingly didn't have money big complex vast you know sophisticated society and it was so top down that they didn't have money right so what money allows is a big complex society with a bottom up exchange right so you don't have the reciprocity everybody knows each other thing and you also don't have some king telling everybody who gets what and the only way i can think of to get in between those is money and you see it in greece right you see it the the origin of coins we're going 
back in time from China. The origin of coins is, I don't know, six, 700 BC. And it starts in this kingdom, Lydia, which is in present-day Turkey, but then Lydia gets conquered by the Persians. And the Greeks are the ones who really go bananas for coins. And it is, I mean, you know, notable that this is uh, the cradle of democracy, right? It is this moment when Greece is this big, complex, you know, kind of set of city-states that are not kinship-based and are, at least in some instances, not top-down, less top-down than the great, big, you know, civilizations to that point. There's something that I really love about this idea, which is that in the very modern context, money often carries this very negative connotation, you know, about greed, consumerism, commercialism, what are the kids saying these days? Late capitalism. Capitalism, Okay, And it's interesting to think that actually money was something that helped to make democracy itself possible in the first place. We don't really think about that because we're so accustomed to the world that we live in now that it's hard to sort of get inside, you know, the world that existed back then and the world that you're trying to describe in your book before these different kinds of political systems emerged. But it seems like what you're describing is that these early kinds of proto-democracies were at least helped along by the introduction of money. I think that's pretty clearly true. And to be clear, like those critiques you were just, you know, you, you were laying out of money in the world today aren't necessarily wrong, right? I want to be clear, like, both of those things can be true. Like, you can have a society that is sort of more or less monetized, a society where more things or fewer things are in the market, right? Listen, there's a reason Um, that you and I are podcasters, because that's where all the money is, Yeah, right, that's right. We're trying to maximize (laughs) revenue. Uh, No, I mean, so I don't want to overstate the point. Like, I will say in the sort of modern complex world, I don't think you could have the kind of reciprocity, you know, marriage and murder thing. Like, it's just too big and complex. That's like a dream. And like, without money, I think you're pretty much stuck in a kind of totalitarianism command and control thing. And I like, I'm definitely out on that, right? So like, (laughs) you know, you can, you can say like what should be in the market and what should be out of the market, right? Like you could have a reasonable point of like, yeah, money is great and healthcare is not a thing that functions well in the market. So I just want to be clear that I'm not like some utopian uh, money guy. And I don't want anybody to sort of confuse You also are not. I know enough about you to know that you're not. We're we're not pursuing some kind of like uber libertarian (laughs) paradise. Yeah. That's not yes. what we're saying. Uh, but I think there is a but lot about... I do have about... a new cryptocurrency the... <laughs> I want to tell you about. <laughs> I think there is a lot about the sort of foundational theories of money and of political systems that we just don't explore very much. And it was really nice to come across them in the book. But yes, it is absolutely the case. There's a lot of greedy bastards out there yeah. in the world. Okay, yeah. And there's a lot of problems with the way, in particular, money and resources, wealth, etc., are distributed in the world. Those problems haven't gone away and they need solutions. Uh, but I just, I just love this idea uh, that early on, money was, if anything, a complement to small d democracy uh, and not something that was rivaling it. In For a sense, sure. Right? I think that's it, really know. true. Yeah. And again, you separate money and wealth. Correct. Right. And I think it's very it's very easy to conflate those two because in the modern world, they're sort of synonymous. Right. But before there was money, there was wealth and inequality. It just uh, it just wasn't monetized. Right. And I, I, that's a really useful distinction and useful in many instances and, and in this one. Yeah. Zooming ahead to the 16 and 1700s. Action. Uh, the, the, er, the early days of the Bank of England and yeah. the Bank of France. Yeah. Uh, in the context of the development of those national banks and how governments were trying to figure out how to manage money in the economy. There's a quote in your book that I want to read. It's from the Duke of Saint-Simon in France. And he writes, quote, the founding of a national bank would be fatal in an absolute monarchy, whereas in a free country, it might be a wise and profitable undertaking, unquote. So similarly here, you see a relationship between uh, management of money and freedom. But it's also kind of complicated. What do you think is going on here? That's a nice leap, first of all. I like that <laughs> leap. Uh, so he, he, was, he was basically right at the time. So, I mean, we can add a little bit of context and then sort of talk about the big picture, right? So in the 
late 1600s and then early 1700s, England started the Bank of England in the late 1600s. And then in the early 1700s, this kind of amazing guy, another guy I can't believe I didn't know about before. John Law? John Law. Yeah. How did I not know about John Law before I wrote the book? He's like this Scottish genius who kills a guy in a duel and gets sentenced to death and then escapes to Europe and like discovers probability theory and uses it to get rich gambling and then becomes like this monetary theorist. And this is this moment uh, when, you know, modern capitalism in a lot of ways is just getting going in Europe. I mean, it's been going, you can date it to different times. It was going in in Italy much earlier, and then it was getting going in Amsterdam in the early 1600s. But like by the 1700s, still like paper money is new to Europe. And so John Locke goes and gets France basically to let him take over the economy, really, ultimately. Like, he brings the first paper money to France and the first kind of modern-style bank, and then he gets control of France's Mississippi territory. This is before the Louisiana Purchase, right? So France still controls, like, half of, you know, modern-day United States. Uh, he, he basically, this one guy, because he gets in good with the regent who's running France on behalf of the boy king, essentially controls the whole French economy. And it's like there's this crazy bubble and like there's this wild stock boom. He, he issues stock in this Mississippi company. And then, of course, it all comes crashing down, right? And England had its own South Sea bubble around the same time. But like they came out of it better. And, and in particular, the Bank of England that was started in the 1690s is still the same Bank of England that is there today. The Bank of England, you know, didn't blow up. And this Bank of France that John Law started did blow up, right? And that quote that you read a minute ago gets at an interesting difference between the two countries, which I think, as you were alluding to, also gets at like a really interesting great big idea about money and society, which is at the time, France was like straight up absolute monarchy, the king or the regent who you know had the power of the king could do whatever he wanted. Whereas in England by this time, parliament had more power, right? To rival the king's power. To rival the factions. king's power. Yes. Exactly. And the Bank of England was this way of essentially like structuring debt that the king owed, uh, but kind of had to pay back, right? Like parliament had more power to make the king pay back the debt. So England was certainly not a democracy like we would recognize, but there was a more there was more of a balance of power, more of a check, a check or balance on the king's power at the time. And there is this idea that that is hugely important for money, for economic development more broadly, but in this instance for money, for a for a financial system to work, right? That if one person, one entity has all the power, they're just going to mess it up. For a few different reasons, by the way, that one centralizing power might end up just printing a lot more money to buy whatever they want. But of course, that then devalues the rest of the money that's out there in society. Yeah. And then people get pissed off and do a revolution because their money's now worthless. But there's other ways in which this can be corrupting as well if you control all the money, because then, of course, you can start using it for other political ends. You can use yeah. your control of money to effectively put in place repressive measures or other kinds of measures that might be good for you, the controlling power, but are actually bad for most of society. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if this is too digressive, but as you were saying that, I thought of, you know, those ideas about the resource curse, right? Where like if there's some country that is rich in some mineral or some or oil, oil or something like to that take a right. classic then and the and the you know the elite or the king or whatever controls that resource then they don't have have to deal with the the populace right they don't have to raise taxes they don't have to do anything with the people in the country because they can just sell the oil and get the money sell the oil externally and it kind of reminds me of that right uh where there's no there's no check right there's no there's no check on their power and like anytime anybody has unchecked power it's going to end badly and i think it also leads to people struggling to have faith or to have trust in that centralized power because their their role is so dominant and you know that they're going to pursue their own self-interested ends that's yeah. what people do, right? And especially people in power. And that itself can also undermine their ability to manage money because you need trust 
to have for money to work you need people to actually Absolutely. trust that it's money you just described yeah. it it is a shared reality yeah. without the shared part it doesn't work and you can't have the shared part unless there's trust i want to read you another quote from the book and this this is about trust itself you're right quote the thing that makes money money is trust when we trust that we will be able to buy stuff with this piece of paper or this lump of metal tomorrow and next month and next year one of the perpetual questions that still hovers over money is who can we trust? And so it's not just about having this one big, all-encompassing, centralizing power and control. It's that whatever system of checks and balances that you do put in place has to be trustworthy for the money itself to work, right? For sure. I mean, one of the interesting things to me, like if we take this set of ideas we're talking about and and bring it to the contemporary world, right? Another thing that I didn't know before, well, before I got to Planet Money, certainly, before I started, you know, reporting on economics, was how much in the modern world private commercial banks are mixed up in in money itself, right? I mean, you put your money in the bank, but in, in money creation, I should say, right? Like, I guess I knew a little bit about the Fed. You know, you think, oh, the Fed. And as we're having this conversation, I can imagine somebody thinking, well, in the modern world, doesn't the Fed, you know, they have a monopoly on on printing money, basically. But it turns out in the modern world, commercial banks, you know, because they are fractional reserve banks, when they make loans, they're essentially creating money, right? And when there's a contraction and they're calling in their loans, they're destroying money, right? Can and I so, just stop for a second just to yeah. explain the system that, yeah, that, yeah. that you're Do describing it. here? Do it. Which is that what we have is effectively a mix of public sector control, which you could lump in the government and the Fed, and then private sector control of money. And what we have is a system where the Fed influences the behavior of the private sector actors, which are the commercial banks. So when the Fed adjusts interest rates, for example, that influences the decisions of businesses who will want to take out loans, and it influences the decisions of banks to make those loans and thereby create the money. It's not a direct thing where the Fed just says, hey, I'm just going to send out a bunch of money one for one out into the economy. It's this very kind of interesting, complicated, intertwined system. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. Very, very well done. <laughs> Better than I could have done it, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, and then the banks themselves are tied up with the government. The government gives banks this really special power of creating deposits, but then it also regulates banks really heavily. I mean, you could do another layer in this sort of where all the checks and balances of the Fed itself is this weird animal, right? Like, we say it's independent, and it is independent relative to, like, Congress or the Treasury or something, but it is part of the government. So the creation of the Fed, in a way, is like the government tying its own hands a little bit. It's like, we could let Congress decide how much money to create or what interest rates should be. But, like, I think it's pretty clear why that's a bad idea, right? I mean, there is an anti-technocratic case against the Fed, but, like, I definitely would pick the Fed over Congress or Treasury to do the things the Fed does. Here's what's so interesting to me about all this, uh, especially in the context of trust and in the context of no one single entity, whether private sector or public sector, having all the power of creating money. Nobody ever really asks if this is actually the best possible arrangement <laughs> and answers with yes or yeah. even a qualified yes. Yeah. Because, and I've said this before, it's very common for people to say, well, if you were designing a monetary management system from scratch, you'd never land on this. Yet we did land on this for a whole bunch of very strange historical reasons. And the fact that it's a mix of the private and public sector means that you don't have to put all your trust in either one, but you do put some trust in both. And that's interesting to me. I think there is there is some kind of virtue in that that sort of goes underexplored by a lot of people. But it's what I thought of as I read your book. And it means that you don't have to, like, rely on, like, one big oversight from the government to do this because that just using your, the history in your book, could create some problems. There could be a lot of abuses there. It could be inflexible. They might not respond quickly enough. But if you put all of money creation into the hands of the private sector and the banks, you might end up with a lot of, a lot of confusion. You might end up with more financial crises. You might end up with a lot of irresponsible behavior. And so we end up with this very weird mix of the two things. And 
you can always look at the details and say, well, this is messed up. This should be adjusted. And over time, these things do get adjusted. There's a financial crisis. Then there's a response. Regulations change. And hopefully over time it gets better, but maybe, maybe not. But the point is you don't have to overly rely on any one side of that uh, to put in place the monetary management system. And because of that, I think it's possible that there's actually more trust in the system rather than what you would get the trust in the system if only one, the public sector or the private sector, controlled all of it. It may be the case that there's more stability uh, because of these sort of competing powers and competing interests. And it does seem like the thing that really undermines trust is instability, right? Like a financial crisis is what makes people lose trust. Otherwise, people just don't think about it, right? If if money is basically stable, if your money in the bank is there, if inflation isn't wildly high, then people just don't even think about it as a system. It's just like the plumbing in your house. Yeah. Uh, I want to go to another quote in your book. This is a longer one. It's about the thing you just mentioned, which is money and tension and all the different kinds of tension that exist in society uh, as a result of the invention of money, but that also sort of reinforce its central role and make it, I think, trustworthy. So here's what you write, quote, for modern money to work, to have banks and a stock market and a central bank, There needs to be tension. Investors and bankers and activists and government officials all need to be arguing over who gets to do what and when. Often today, the people making those arguments suggest the system is broken. The government is interfering too much or the bankers are getting away with murder. But those arguments themselves are, if not sufficient to make the system work, at least necessary. The push and pull among people with different interests, lenders and borrowers, investors and workers, is what keeps money stable, unquote. Again, there's the analogy with democracy, which is that it's loud and it's messy and it's contentious, but the end result is that it seems to work. What do you think? Yeah, it mostly works most of the time, right? As <laughs> as you were reading it, I was thinking it's a more long-winded way of saying what the Duke of San Simon said uh, you know, that that you quoted earlier, basically that like all of that fighting, right, all of those competing interests, that is the way a free society is supposed to work. Right. And the fighting is not evidence of failure. Right. The fighting is is the society working like that's the thing happening. And and there is a real bottom upness about money and the monetary system. I mean, like you were saying, nobody would like take a blank piece of paper and design a monetary system and come out with what we have, right? But it, it weirdly might be the case that if a really smart person took a blank piece of paper and designed a monetary system, maybe it wouldn't work as well, Yeah, right? Like, even if it would seem more rational, there is some weird Chesterton's fence thing of like, you know, I mean, maybe it just kind of works. And like, Wait, wait, I love this. Chesterton's fence. Yeah. This is the idea that if you're driving down a road and you come across a fence that goes right through the road, okay, you shouldn't rush to remove the fence until you know the reason why it's there in the first place. And so in the case of money and the system we came up with, we should always be asking, well, wait a minute, even though this doesn't seem to make sense, why is it there? Because we could try to design this beautiful, theoretical, elaborate system for how to manage money in the economy. But in the real world, there could be all kinds of complications that we just haven't anticipated in this weird way in which we've like stumbled through the centuries into the system we have now has at least some virtues that may not be immediately visible, but that we don't recognize because of that. Uh but they're, they're real nonetheless. We just don't know it because we don't see the counterfactual. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure the system we have now is not the worst, right? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't mean it can't be improved it upon. It could be improved, yeah. but it's hard to improve the world, right? Like, it's, like I would raise capital requirements if I could, right? I would, I would make banks use more of basically their own money and less borrowed money, right? Sure. Like, that seems like a good idea. There are things that seem like good ideas to me. But, like, I, I guess as I've learned more, I've I've come to have more respect for the system as it exists. Like, it seems more functional to me than it used to. Maybe that's just because we're farther away from the financial crisis. I don't know. Totally. And there's another important distinction to make here. We're talking about the functionality of the system, not that the end results are always perfect for society. Because one of the themes of this podcast is that there are a lot of distributional issues in terms of who has wealth in society. But here again, we see the distinction between money and wealth, between money and 
and things like quality, equity, opportunity, those kinds of ideas. Yeah, you could have more redistribution in the same monetary system. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to turn now to crypto. I'm going to pour a glass of water. When yeah. you say crypto, <laughs> pour I gotta, pour I yourself drink. a glass of water uh, while, I, uh, while I launch into the question. This gets back at the trust idea as well. And this is also a theme we've explored in the podcast before. Crypto was meant to be a so-called trustless solution. Okay, where you didn't have to know anything about the counterparty in order to have this exchange. And we can see some ways in which that might be useful. One of the reasons that I've been a little bit skeptical that cryptocurrencies, as they're currently mostly now envisioned, are going to be this thing that takes over the world is because actually people quite like having trust in their lives, not just trusting their friend and not just trusting their loved ones. I mean, even trusting businesses, institutions like banks or the government, which can do all kinds of terrible things, but which can also be held accountable when something goes wrong. And they do provide these conveniences. And you can't have the convenience of a bank that oversees your money and that you can yell at if they lose your money without having the trust in the bank in the first place or in the financial institution or in the government, you know, to do what you think is right. And this strikes me as a very human thing to trust and to to be trusted and to try to be trustworthy. Okay, that is something that is a very human impulse. And it seems to me like the cryptocurrency approach to money works around that and it sort of ignores that. And it seems to me like That's a pretty big omission. But what do you think? I mean, maybe, you know, crypto people like to talk about trusting the code, right? So you can trust the code. I guess the other thing I think of is like there are now these giant institutions that lots of people use to buy and sell crypto, right? Coinbase is this giant publicly traded company. And I don't know about most, but certainly many people who buy Bitcoin, use Coinbase. And Coinbase is functioning the way, basically, a brokerage, the way Schwab would function if you bought stock. So there is an institution there. And and in a lot of ways, crypto seems more institutionalized than I would have thought 10 years ago. Yeah. Right? And by like, the way, we're, we're, we're discussing here one very specific thing when we're discussing crypto. Crypto has now branched out yeah. into this whole suite they, of They don't even say currency things. anymore. Yeah. If you notice, exactly. they leave and, the currency off the <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And I'm only referring to cryptocurrencies, and I'm referring to cryptocurrencies being transferred outside the context of these exchanges, where yeah. I think most of the transfers probably now take place. Well, I mean, you know... But doesn't that tell you something, by the way, that so much activity now goes through sure, these centralized sure. exchanges, whereas the original idea I mean, the was original idea was so radical, right? Like the, the crypto part of the book is basically the origin story, right? It's basically mostly the story before Bitcoin is invented. And there's like 20 years of like these really smart, really radical, mostly Silicon Valley uh, engineers trying to solve this set of interesting technical problems to get to this libertarian dream, which is, you know, digital, anonymous, stateless money, right? And you still feel like crypto, the crypto world still has those vibes, you know, still has those kind of would wave that flag, but it's not really that. You know, when you read the stuff that people were writing in the 90s, the cypherpunks who are the sort of proto-Bitcoin people, like, it's really radical. It's like, you know, this is state secrets and breaking the law and, like, the downfall of governments. And so it's interesting the way you get the sort of vibes of that, but in the context of these very institutionalized, publicly traded, getting along with the regulators, multi-billion dollar companies. It's, a, it's kind of a funny thing. I want to talk about your new podcast, What's Thank Your you. Problem? Thank you. Okay. And the reason I'm interested in this is because of the moment in which you're choosing to introduce this specific theme for a podcast. So this podcast is about you interviewing entrepreneurs, engineers, and their approach to solving problems. And I'm kind of just curious to know what your thinking was on why this is something that matters now in the context of the U.S. economy and the global economy. So... You know, I'll say, just to go back to, like, my years at Planet Money, which is like me in the middle of my adulthood coming to economics, having never studied it before. To me, the big, exciting lesson of economics is 
the pie can get bigger, right? Everybody can get richer. And that, in fact, that's what has happened for the past couple hundred years, right? Uh, I didn't really know that before, and it's not intuitive. I feel like the world feels like a zero-sum game, but in fact, it's a positive-sum game. And the way everybody can get richer in the long run is technological progress, basically. People figuring out how to do things better or cleaner or faster or cheaper, right? Like, that's it. That's what we have in the long run. That's our big move. And the way that happens is like one clever little tweak at a time, one little breakthrough at a time. And so what I'm trying to do on this show, ideally, is talk to the people like whose job is figuring out those little micro improvements that in the aggregate make us better off. And we should also note that for the last roughly four to five decades, the U.S. has been, and other advanced economies, have been mired in what's known as the great stagnation, which means that These technological breakthroughs that you're describing, the technological improvement that will make us all richer in the long run, well, it has continued, but it has continued at a much slower pace than what was witnessed in like the three decades after the end of the Second World War. And so the great stagnation is that basically progress is happening at a slower pace and technological breakthroughs are the things that can help reaccelerate it. And that's what we're hoping for. And what's interesting is that there is some hope, there is actually some hope that in the last couple of years, we have seen signs that maybe the economy will be breaking out of the great stagnation in the near future. And these things are impossible to predict. Yeah. But there's a bunch of different things that could cause that. One is all the new experimentation in the economy that's happening in the aftermath of COVID. Another is that technological progress sometimes happens for quite mysterious reasons that you need, for example, a lot of underlying technologies to be worked on for a period of time. And then suddenly, in a given moment, they all come together. They overlap with each other. They complement each other. And then you really see some impressive inventions and some breakthroughs that blow your mind. And there's other things that could cause it as well. But I'm kind of curious to know if this was in the background of your thinking when you were introducing what's your problem, that there's this thing that's been happening in the U.S. economy for a very long time. And there's hope now that that thing could be ending and you'll be interviewing the people who are partly, maybe primarily responsible for ending it. I mean, I hope that's true, right? For everybody's sake. I hope productivity gains take off again. And for your podcast's sake. I mean, my podcast is not as highly theorized as that question (laughs) might suggest. And it is, I mean, I would say What's Your Problem is a great compliment to the new bazaar because, like, you know, this show is, like, very macro, very big idea. And the thing I'm trying to do is, like, get to the get to the small idea in a way right get to the person whose job is figuring out how to do drone delivery in the US or the person who's actually trying to build the app that can people that can teach people to speak a new language right so i i i don't know the answer to that macro question and to some extent like the the show doesn't doesn't depend on it right I suppose it may be the other way. The, the macro question will be the result of how well these people I'm interviewing do at their jobs, right? Can you actually solve these hard technical right. problems? Yeah. Uh, the new bazaar and what's your problem? Like money and democracy. Yeah. Two like, great tastes. Like macro and they micro. Great, right. <laughs> uh, another thing that's been going on and that I think is related to the great stagnation uh, is that economic dynamism has also been quite weak in the U.S. for several decades. This is measured along a few different dimensions by economists. One is the pace of startups and the corresponding pace of companies dying. Uh, Another is the extent to which people are willing to change jobs, to go to jobs where they are a better fit. Uh, Another is their willingness to go to new parts of the country, to actually physically up and move, um, to go again where there are opportunities and where they can revitalize different parts of the country when it makes sense to do that. And all of these measures were quite bad before COVID. But in the aftermath of COVID, for a whole bunch of different reasons, some related to policy, some maybe related to things that we don't yet understand, like mass psychology, there seems to be a recovery there. We've seen a record number of startups in the last couple of years. We've seen a ton of people quitting their jobs for new jobs. Um, The data on people actually moving doesn't seem to be keeping up with those two 
data points. But it's also possible that with more people working from home now, it just doesn't matter quite as much. And I'm kind of curious to know if observing those trends was also something that you were thinking about as you were developing what's your problem. And maybe like that'll have to do with the kinds of guests that you choose as well. Yeah, I mean, again... No, no, I didn't theorize it that much, but I will say I'm projecting. I, I this like is stuff it. I'd I like be thinking it. about, if, right? If, if I had a, like a way bigger brain version of the show, it would all be yes. One of the guys I interviewed on one of the first episodes is this, you know, most of the people I'm talking to are like engineering people, but I talked to this guy who is not an engineer, who's just like a serial entrepreneur who's made a soap opera blog when he never watched a soap opera and sold it for $9 million and then bought a $300,000 website called Sausage Dog Central that sold ramps to wiener dogs and has sold tens of millions of of dog yeah, ramps. Ramps to wiener dogs, by the way. This is actually something that's helpful if you have a wiener dog because they can fall off the couch very easily and these are just ramps to help them walk it's just down. just a ramp. <laughs> so the, the thing that's interesting to me about that guy's story and that I thought of when you were asking that question is... And, and it goes back to this idea that maybe you need lots of different technologies to come together, you know, to, to have this big productivity explosion, is one of the undertold stories, I think, about the technological developments of the last few decades are how much easier it has made it to start a business, right? And so this guy builds these businesses without funding on the back of technologies like you know, buying Facebook ads and using Google AdSense on his website to monetize it. And with the with the Wiener Dogram company, he uses Shopify, which is kind of an amazing company, right? You don't hear much about it as a consumer, but it's this gargantuan company that just makes it easy to sell stuff on the internet, right? And so, like, there's this whole ecosystem of tools that are typically free or cheap that you can use to start a business, right? And so I do wonder, I mean, you were talking about maybe the pandemic catalyzes it. Like, I certainly experienced. I assume you experienced the same thing. Hey, like, man, Amy Keene and I, we started a business for real, <laughs> in the aftermath right? for of real. it. Yeah. And like even just the simple fact, like I worked at Planet Money for 10 years. I never recorded anything for the show from home until March of 2020 when I like tens of millions or hundreds of millions of other people had to go home. And I was like, OK, let's try and make the show from our closets. And it worked. Right. Like in a way that I don't think it would have worked even five years earlier. Right. Like there wouldn't have been the willingness to even try Zoom either. Didn't right? used to work. Right. Like yeah. video calls were like, oh, we got to get the the IT guy yeah. in. Like a video call did not used to be a normal thing. There's a billion wires and things. You don't know and what they goes just into didn't what. Work yeah. And it was glitchy. Like it's really easy to forget how much better everything just got. And like moving files around and like even Google Docs. Google Docs is not that new, but I'm old enough to remember like when I had to like email myself Word Docs if I wanted to work on something from home. And like the notion that multiple people could look at a document on different computers at the same time and edit it was like unthinkable, right? So like these are all really meaningful technological breakthroughs that like it is, it has been a mystery. Like, why has there not been more productivity growth? Like, it sure feels like there should be productivity growth, <laughs> yeah, right? absolutely. We had Stian Westlake on the show recently, and he, along with his co-author, Jonathan Haskell, focused a lot on what's known as the intangible economy, uh-huh. right? And one of the points that he makes is that the intangible economy has become so powerful in part because it helps to do things in the tangible economy, in the real world, the uh-huh. material world. Uh-huh. And I've noticed it in the first three episodes of your show, of What's Your Problem? You have focused on technological breakthroughs, technological problems in the material world. So you interviewed somebody who's trying to develop um, a self-driving company, an app that makes that makes it really easy to get a self-driving car, and hopefully that'll happen soon. You interviewed somebody who's trying to develop um, a kind of drone system for delivering medical um, or medicines, I think, to remote parts of the world and maybe even someday in the U.S. Um, and your other interview was with uh, the guy who makes the wiener dog ramps, right, and who's now transitioning into, like, dog food. But in all of those cases, they've been helped along quite a bit by the kinds of technologies that you just described, not all of which are real world technologies, but they make it so much easier to facilitate these breakthroughs in the material world. For sure. I mean, you know, the software is eating the world is a good line, right? That's the Mark Andreessen, the venture capitalist, several years ago wrote a op-ed with that headline. And it's really good, right? And seems pretty true. 
I mean, I think part of the reason I've done the physical world things is they make for good stories, frankly. It's nice if you can see the thing or imagine the thing. Like, to be honest, I'm really interested in, in like, code itself. And, like, you know, there's companies trying to make it easier to code. There's this idea of, like, you can build an app without code, right? Just sort of have, like, Lego blocks kind of that you snap together, to use a physical metaphor. It, it's... <laughs> It's harder to figure out how to make a story about it, right? Like GitHub is super interesting, and it's a kind of technology in a meta way. But it's harder to to tell, I think. But but I would like to get at the get at the root of it. I mean, a remarkable number of things keep coming back to AI, right? Which is also super hard to tell. You kind of say AI, and then you say machine learning, and then you say data, and you say correlation. But it's really hard to feel like you're getting to the thing. You know, you're getting to the root of it. You're getting to insight. But I'd like to figure out how to do that. But the woman that you were interviewing, um, can you just tell us I, her name? So uh, her Aisha, Aisha Evans. Evans. She's the CEO yeah. of Zooks, which is this self-driving car company. It, it got acquired by Amazon. But they were interesting to me because, like, they're not trying to, like, make a thing that looks like a car where, like, you can take your hands off the wheel. The thing they're making doesn't look like a car, right? It's like this box, and it has, it's like carriage-style seating, like, on a train, two benches that face each other, no steering wheel, no dashboard. It's like, what if we actually are going to make a thing, don't even call it a car, that, you know, a robo-taxi? Uh, so, like, they're they're kind of the maximalist version of that, which is interesting to me. Yeah, and also what was interesting about that episode was this idea that in trying to figure out AI, you actually have to understand a lot about human strengths and weaknesses, the things that the mind is capable of, the things that it does subconsciously, and really how bad it is at doing things that are more conscious, like just like very complicated math problems. The computers blow us away there. But when it comes to things that merge sort of the mind and the body, actually like the human system, whatever you want to call it, the human anatomy is like remarkably good at these things and very hard for AI to duplicate. And you have to understand these different dimensions in coming up with these technological breakthroughs as it relates to something like self-driving cars. For sure. I mean, her her point in the interview was like, if there were no people driving, self-driving cars would be perfect now. They, they'd be, you know, it'd be a solved problem. The problem for self-driving cars is figuring out what are people going to do? What's the person, you know, a self-driving car pulls up to a four-way stop at the same time as a human being. And like, yes, there's technically a rule for who goes first when that happens, but nobody follows that rule, right? So the self-driving car has to know that nobody follows that rule and has to know what the kind of norm is. I mean, to maybe stretch things a little too much, it reminds me of the kind of origins of money thing, right? This is not some like mathematical problem. It has to become one, I guess, for AI to solve it. But like, it's a culture problem, right? And 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 in particular, in the case of the four-way stop, the cultural norms about who goes first when are different in different places. And if you're a human being and you pull up to four-way stop and you see a person driving another car, you'll make inferences based on the kind of car, based on how the person looks, based on the expression on their face, based on if they're looking at you or not, as to whether they're going to go or you should go. And you don't know that you're doing all those things, right? It's just a thing as a person. You're really good at making inferences about the behavior of other people based on all kinds of cues that you're not even aware of. And like that turns out to be a really hard problem for computers. Connecting AI to the origins of money. I went can, for it. We really can't <laughs> follow that up with anything that's going to be better. So let me just say, Jacob, thanks, man. This was a lot of fun. I, I really say. enjoyed it too. Thank you for being so thoughtful. I really appreciate how, how thoughtful this was. It was great. Yeah. And everybody can go check out your podcast at all the usual podcast places. It's called What's Your Problem? And where can they find other things by you, your book, your previous podcast, your work in general? Yeah. I mean, the book is money, the true story of a made-up thing. I spend too much time on Twitter. I'm at Jacob Goldstein. So Excellent. Uh, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you think there's anybody I should interview on this new podcast, like, I'm trying to figure out who to book. So yeah. tell me who to interview. Right in. And if I don't want to interview them, then That's we'll it. forward them to Jacob. Send it, just send it to Cardiff. <laughs> and then, Cardiff, you can just be a screen. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's delightful. And that's our show for this week. In the show notes for this episode, we are going to post links to Jacob's book, Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing, and to his new podcast, What's Your Problem? So check those out. The New Bazaar is a production of Bizarre Audio. For me and the person whose friendship, whose partnership, 
I value more than all the money in the world. Keep your damn money. As long as I get to keep working with executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you like today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. It really is the way that people can find out about us and that ensures that we can keep making the show. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>